Gaming on the Frontier. This is Bruce. This is Trav. And this is Jonathan. Welcome to Gaming on the Frontier, your podcast of mining the Wild West and the and the Appalachian Mountains and the streams and the valleys for nuggets of gold and occasionally finding some. There's gold in them there hills. Yeah, we're sitting on a gold mine. This week... Uh, on Gaming on the Frontier, we are talking about what would it have been like if Bureau 13 hadn't gotten started after the Civil War, but instead got started in the Revolutionary time. All right, well, let's let's go and, and turn this a little bit more direct. You know, what would a Bureau 13 team be like in, in those days, what me- would be the members of a Bureau 13 team, you know, whatever name they used to call themselves, to go after, uh, to, to work against the British uh, during the war? So what do you see, as, if you were playing a character in a Bureau 13, and it was the 1700s, you know, uh, the war, what uh, what characters would you choose? Okay, I'm seeing definitely you're going to have three or four Let's say we're doing a team of six. Just there. I would definitely see at least three of them would be colonial militiamen. They got the muskets. They got the bayonets. And they're just normal guys who are fighting against the British. You're going to have at least one Native American who, maybe two, one of them is going to be good just with getting around in the wilderness. And then you're going to have the guy who has... Okay, I don't, and I, and I'm mixing tribes here. Native American listeners, please forgive me if I'm messing with your. Yeah, we, we don't really know the differences between the tribes. Right, and I'm just, you're going to have your shaman or your medicine man. Your witch, your witch doctor, right? Yeah, that, whatever term uh, that. Uh, <laughs> but your your magic user, right? The person who knows how to summon the spirits of the land to help defend. So you're going to have at least three of the militiamen, one or two Native Americans who know the land and they have that home court advantage. And another one, but I'd say that's it. You'd probably, it would be a, a mix of colonials and Native Americans. And it- the, the thing I would probably add would be, especially um, farther in the Northern colonies, would probably be uh, a trapper or hunter. Oh, uh, yeah. That guy who who is everyone's used to him going off for months at a time and then coming back laden with all sorts of skins. And he looks rough. He obviously doesn't live here, but he certainly knows his way around the woods. Or has been out in the woods with them so long he looks he acts like them, so gone native, so to speak, yeah. Yeah. Okay, so I like that. Three colonials, a French trapper, and one or two Native Americans, one of them magically adept. Okay, you're, you're missing a whole category. Hmm. You're missing the, uh, uh, the grandmother herbalist. Yeah. Oh. I mean, the, you know, the, the, the women that were the, uh, the, 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 the birth givers, the, uh, uh, you know, compounded all the, the medicines uh, in the colonies. You know, unfortunately, the ones that were first, you know, uh, hanging from a noose whenever someone cried witch. Uh, they were also tended to be by themselves. They had all kinds of, you know, because they, of what they did, they had all kinds of poisonous substances, you know, in their in their surroundings, and they knew, you know, things that would you'd come around, you'd say, "What's that for?" Oh, that'll kill you in a second. He says, "But it's re- it's really 
Bruce, maybe an original member of the Wind Willow Coven. Before they went bad? <laughs> yeah. Before they sold their souls to the devil? That too, yeah. Just You know, there's a lot of groups that started off with good intentions and ended up... Well, yeah. That's what the road to hell is paved with that. Right, exactly. So I'm just saying is that not not every, you know, a lot of times you look at some of these groups that are, are considered really, really bad, and you look, originally they had, you know, very uh, lofty goals that they were trying to achieve. But as we all know, absolute power corrupts absolutely, yes. I uh, I always prefer absolute power attracts the the corruptible. Okay, that works too. Yeah. That's always my preference. You know. Anyways, um, the because uh, that that assumes that that you, you you no one can have you know that if you you couldn't give it up you know and there's a whole story called Lord of the Rings about somebody who did just that. <laughs> his his name was Frodo. He might have had a little thing at the end where he had a little trouble giving it up, but after the rig was gone, he was fine. But no, you're right. I forgot all about the, the well, see, I kind of lumped in that Native American as possibly having herbal lore. And I, and I don't mean to belittle the roles of women in this group. No, it's just my first thought was, yeah, you'd have the Native American, oh, he was the survivalist and knew what herbs and plants could do this, that, and the other archetype of the grandmother herbalist that would work too you know and it doesn't have to be a grandmother she could have a daughter that she's been training okay and and so she grandma's the expert but the daughter's the one who actually goes out and and goes around and you know actually gives people the poultices and does the actual medicine so she you know it doesn't have to be you know you have to play a, an old granny i'm saying you can play you know anybody you know but this this did seem to be an area that's that that historically or at least in the literature seems to be more toward the uh uh you know the the female side and your your group your your bureau 13 group was sadly lacking in in, in females yeah yeah no slight no slight tended against women did just yeah my mind just da, 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 da. and and don't forget, like I said, in my in my uh, reference, the dark side of the moon, there was a conjure woman and a conjure man. So, okay, you know, there it doesn't. You know, if you wanted to throw these kinds of supernatural uh, people out into, you know, and they could have come from anything. I mean, they could have, you know, run into the supernatural, been granted powers by the supernatural, uh, you know, in exchange for keeping people away from the supernatural who wants to be left alone. Okay, another uh, another archetype, and this is prevalent in Northern Crown, and I'm sure it would work, uh, a variation on your grandmother archetype. Some Remember, there were those brought over, not of their own free will, from the Dark Continent. You could have, you know... Those of African descent who know of such abilities that, as I said, could be a variation on the grandmother alchemist, somebody who deals on that path, do all the herbal tinctures and concoctions. That's, I believe in Northern Crown, they call them Cimarrons because they altered the names of, you know, oh, these are the French and these are the Spanish and they all, and the African-American slaves or the freedmen in that particular setting, they call them Cimarrons. But yes, somebody from Africa. Exactly, because because slavery was going on at this time, and people were being brought, you know, tooth and nail from Africa, you know, and so therefore you could, you know, there could have been women and men with powers, not enough power to keep them from being, you know, uh, put, you know, killed by by uh, iron balls you know, from muskets, but might know, actually have supernatural power that they might put toward the goal of, of uh, you know, of, of, of American independence with the promise that maybe in the future they would gain true, true uh, citizenship. Didn't happen. Or at least freedom. Yeah, they would be. Well, I mean, there were plenty of free blacks, okay, in America, 
Okay, they weren't all slaves, right? It, it's just that some were brought over and they were made into slaves. And certainly, you know, if you had somebody who was a slave on a, on a plantation or a farm somewhere and, and someone knew they had power of this kind, especially the Freemasons, they might offer them their freedom in exchange for their service. Or at the very least, they would have, okay, you're not a slave for us now. We were paid handsomely. You now are owned by this person. Right. You, you got bought by somebody who's a Freemason, and he then says, okay, in exchange for your service, we will write your, your letter of freedom. Yeah. So all you have to do is serve, you know, as a, a, in this special role in the war, a war of independence against Britain, and you will come out of it, you know, with this sum of money as a stake and your and and, and this certificate of of of, um, of, of freedom of, of you being a free man, uh, you and your family, and uh, I can see that as 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 happening. That's you know that's because if, if, if you start looking for resources to fight against the supernatural, you're going to look everywhere you can find. And nobody is going to probably be looking into, you know, black slaves uh, or uh, Irish slaves, because they were both uh, in those days, uh, you know, for resources uh, of, uh, to use against, you know, the Americas. Oh yeah! Oh no! There, there were definitely, yes, there were. And, uh, one word about the Irish and their supernat leprechaun. Yeah. Yeah. Well, those especially came over later, but it's not. It's not to say that some didn't come over, and those they they also could have been working for the British. So you could have had leprechaun clan versus leprechaun clan. Yeah. Oh, let's see what else besides the the French trapper, I do believe if you were to go farther south, you could have had stuff from either of Spanish descent or if you wanted to go farther south of a Caribbean nature. Oh, oh there is one type yeah. of magic that comes to mind when I'm thinking of the Caribbean back then. The voodoo hoongin. Oh, Oh, that would oh, that will not end well. <laughs> Just if you enlist the voodoo magics, oh, as long as it's working for you. Well, yeah, that's what I mean. Get yeah, but who who are they really working for? That's the problem. <laughs> well, yeah, they start off working for you, and then you know this this could be one of those things where it could happen on both sides, where both you know both the Americans, uh, the, the the colonists, and the British are both trying to use these these kinds of, of of things, and they end up basically blowing up on both sides. <laughs> well, yeah, that's the thing is that. Because the Brits would already know from, and what is the name of the trading company, the East Indian Trading Company? They would already have the super, you know, the, all the stuff down in the Caribbean. They'd known about it for like, you know, 50, 60, 70 years. So, yeah, the Brits, it would be a race. The, the colonists who know about that stuff and then the people back in Britain who they would, the, 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 the Caribbean would be a hotbed of, Join us. No, join us. And just, yeah, the, all the Caribbean peoples would be caught in the middle of this because of that, that voodoo magic where you're putting curses and hexes and all that on them. Well, I don't see it, hap it happening down there, but I see that as a resource that they would draw from. No, that's what I mean. They would realize yeah. because you'd have the colonials and the Brits going, wait a minute, we know all about this supernatural stuff on all these islands south of Florida, and it would be a race. Who could turn that 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 asset to their advantage first? And see, that's where you know that. And and if you you know again, I think see the British, you know, uh, uh, if they're doing it from that direction, they would primarily be using them using boats as platforms to bringing them up, letting them use their powers and such, you know, working their way north. Uh, because that's the, the, you know those are the low those are the low hanging fruit right you know there's no it doesn't make sense to go and take people from the, the all the way down to Caribbean and take them all the way up to New England 
there's lots of there's lots of people to uh, who were rebelling in in uh, Virginia and uh, and and uh, South Carolina and such, you know. So it got a little sparse there toward Georgia, you know. Uh, uh, there's there's there, it was pretty wild and woolly down there, but uh, and again, let's like say the Spanish were holding firm that 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 area was theirs anyways so you did when you're having a war again you don't want to have you don't want to have a war on multiple fronts so you didn't want to you didn't want to get the spanish fighting you <laughs> well you know while you're you're trying to fight each other well i could see two things if the colonials tried to go and enlist the spanish one they had their own magics and of course you had things like the fountain of youth two and and i think both of you will agree spanish steel remember toledo steel and i'm not talking toledo ohio folks i'm talking toledo spain the spaniards oh, yeah. had some of the best blades in europe i mean they weren't obviously they weren't as good as the folded metal of the japanese you know the you know the masashi swordsmiths i think they were called but Spanish steel was pretty good. It was way above the common swords that were given out to soldiers at the time. Oh, yes. Yeah. And so, you know, those the colonials would be like, okay, we need every asset we can. Oh, look, just south of what we call Georgia. Yeah. There are Plus Spanish the, outposts the left, right, and center now. Probably the only ones. I mean, they had explored much, much deeper than in either France, um, England, or the Dutch. Um, they they had pretty much the South America covered. So anything from down there, any kind of weirdness well, yeah. from South America, they could draw on. Yeah. Now, another area of, that doesn't get a whole lot of play, but I always thought it should have, is, is that, of course, you you know we've all heard stories of, of spirits, woodland spirits and things like that, that would come in and they would possess not just people, but animals. So your Bureau 13 team could also include some animals that were of human intelligence because they were inhabited by native spirits. Oh. You know, uh, dogs, horses, uh, possibly some birds. Oh, no, and like like little things like squirrels and whatnot. Yeah, those weren't, you know, you're having critters all run around there. They would pay them no mind because it's just like, oh, yeah, it's just an animal. And, yeah, the animal could, that would be fantastic. Re recon, a bird or a squirrel or a chipmunk possessed by a spirit, and then come back and say, yeah, they got this, this, and this, and this is over here. And the big shed with the boomsticks is over there on the right. Yeah, you know. Oh no, yeah. I, I didn't even realize about the possessed the, the nature spirits coming in and doing that. Yeah. Ooh. When when we talk about warfare in, you know, uh, you know, we're used to modern day and things like that, but when they had the warfare back in those days, they did not have street lamps. Okay? When they had warfare, it was by the light of the moon if there was, you know, assuming that it, it was a clear night and that you didn't have too much cloud cover, which there was a lot of, I, I, I mean, not enough tree cover, which there was a lot of in the colonies. So uh, at night, when, these, when a lot of these kinds of altercations would happen between the supernatural and uh, of both sides, these are things that would happen, you know, in... In, in, in close, uh, I mean, truly scary, you know, do or death kind of situations, not pretty, you know, across the field, firing of guns at ranks on each other. The Brit I mean, the British like to do that. That's how they like to do their fighting. But the supernatural is not going to be, you know, if you're going to fight, you know, that, those are not British troops. They were not going to play by the same rules that the tightly regimented redcoats were. And they were. They're going to be coming in in the dark, you know, in, uh, you know, uh, and doing things, you know, murder, uh, you know, uh, you know, causing fear and and uh, 
uh, I'm sorry, uh, a terror and things like that. I mean, because remember, you know, outside of destroying, you know, uh, big things like, you know, destroying crops and destroying, uh, you know, uh, uh, fish areas uh, and uh, uh boat building places and stuff stuff like that to, to break the 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 strength of uh, of the Americans okay possibly going in and destroying manu uh, steel manufacturing plants and things like that you know mostly what they're trying to do is break the spirit of uh, you know turn the Americans against their own people and the best way of doing that is to create a, a sense of fear and distrust so that they're like, why aren't you here helping us? We, you know, strange things are happening, and you're going off to war, and we're not going to keep sending resources to you when we need soldiers back here to protect us. So, uh, you know, th these combats between Bureau Thirteen agents and the agents of the British, I see that as happening in the dark of night, in the, uh, in secret places, you know, on rooftops, in in back alleys. On waterfronts, you know, uh, in oh no, it's going to be all all cloak and dagger. You're not going to have. I mean, you might have a musket go off and and the night or something, but it's all going to be secret cloak and dagger because yeah, like you said, the supernatural. They're not going to. You're not going to have the spirits be out in the open. Yeah, and you got to remember back then people were super. And I'm gonna I'm gonna say this in a in a podcast safe way they were superstitious capital a capital f a lot of these people were still god fearing you know don't go out at night don't do you know just make sure that as far as all of your superstitions and all that you dot your i's and cross your t's and make sure that you know throw the salt over your shoulder all that they're not gonna miss a thing so all of this stuff will be done in secret. You're not going to have massive spirits whipping around what I call manna from hell in broad daylight. Just, yeah, they're, they're not going to want to be out in the public. So, yeah, I can see a lot of this whole early Bureau 13 is going to be even more secret than what we know of it today. When they used to get down on their knees uh, uh, in their beds and they would say, I pray the Lord. My soul to keep, yeah. My soul to keep. If I die before I wake, I pray the Lord my soul to take. They meant that. Yeah. They, they seriously considered that they might not wake up the next morning. And if that and if it happened, if they were to die, they wanted to make sure that nothing snatched their soul away and they got to go to heaven. So this was the mindset of people that they they were you know that they were surrounded by, you know, not the godly people of, of England, but the literally the wild woolly wilderness of the Americans. And even in towns, you know, uh you know, candles would burn late into the night, you know, and shutters were on windows. Yeah, and often, well, well, I remember this from the, and now you saying all that, I'm reminded of Metallica's Enter Sandman, and I can see, because Fur's in the in the chat here, you know, banging her head silently to that. Um, remember, a lot of these towns and, and cities, the church was the focal point of town. I remember planning the old Mijike campaign with my former cast member Walks of Silent Feet and 1710 Fort Pontchartrain, which is now Detroit. St. Anne's Church was the focal point of the city. So, yeah, the, the people back then were just incredibly religious and superstitious, and they just had their, okay, we're going to do all of the things to make sure that the bad things don't get us in the middle of the night. And if they do, the Lord will accept us gladly. Yes, because we were taken unawares. Yeah. Yeah, they, they were afraid that those spirits were going to come out on their souls and go, om nom nom. Yeah. I just had another thought was like, depending on how far north you went, you might also be dealing with some small remnants of the early Viking expeditions. Oh, dude. 
Oh, yes, that's right. Folks, um, pretty much history is pretty much disputed that Columbus was the big discoverer of America. The Vikings did this <laughs> this stuff oh, oh. quite a bit earlier. And, and the thing is that Columbus discovered Cuba. He didn't actually discover the continent. Yeah, the, uh, true, what yeah. was it? Uh, I believe, yeah, Hispaniola, which is today Haiti and the Dominican Republic. But yeah, the Viking expedition. Oh, no. It, oh, oh, no. When we did Mijake, we did research. We went, uh, Walks with Silent Beat and I went down that rabbit hole. Uh, the Vikings went to, I believe, to Greenland. The Druids were here shortly after them, and they kept island hopping. They got down into, even in the Ohio Valley. Folks, if you want to research that, look up these three words. You know, as we say in Dementia Radio, JFGI, just frilling, Google it. Yam, Ko, K-O, Desh, D-E-S-H. They were basically Celtic warriors that came, you know, along through the north, down through Iceland, Greenland, Nova Scotia, all they, and they settled, and they were found as far south as the Ohio Valley. So you could have not only remnants of Vikings, but remnants of Druids there that already in the New World, and then the colonists from Britain came over. So you could be throwing this into this mix of the thought experiment. Because the Vikings X, uh, came over, what was it, 500 years before? So like oh, 900, 1,000 A.D. Yeah. was when the Vikings came over, and then maybe 100 years later, the Druids came over. So, yeah, Jonathan reminded me of the Vikings and, yeah. and reminded me of the, Thank you, sir. So, yeah. Well, um, that was actually, I think, a plot of, um, I think, sci-fi, uh, when it was the Sci-Fi Network. Whatever they call oh, the good it old days, now, yes, but yeah, yeah. Um, they actually had a, a made-for-TV movie starring um, was it Adrian Paul from the Highlander TV show? Oh yeah, yeah. That yeah, was yeah. about the lost colony of Roanoke, and in their take on it, the lost colony was destroyed by Viking ghosts. Ooh. <laughs> if it were classified as a sci-fi channel movie, I might actually look at it because we all know how sci-fi. Yeah. Such channel movies are, yeah. Being I, I a don't B feel movie bad would be, it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Being a B movie would be an honor for some of those movies. Just yeah. Hey, I like what I like watching Z movies. Yeah, There's go ahead. an earnestness to those Z movies that they're trying. They're obviously trying the best they can do with nothing. <laughs> okay, Bruce, you you're familiar with the con and either of you are you your familiar concept of the Smithy Awards? Where it is the it, it, it makes the Razzies look like an elegant pageant. Did you did you say Smithy or Stiffy? Smithy. Okay, Smithy. S M I T H E E. Yeah, I think Stiffy is a different genre. Yeah, we're not yeah. again family podcast here, but no, the Smithy Awards. Uh, my my friends Perky Goth and Oz. That's how they met because they have a they have a love for those type of movies and. Even 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 sci-fi movies just look at Smithy Award movies and go, damn, you went there. You know, just I mean, it was they they told me some of the plots and I've seen like five minutes and I'm there with Gina and I, I can't watch this. This is how you two met. I can't do this. Well, there there were a ton of zombie films that were definitely Z grade because all you at where because what they would do is that they would literally they'd say, Oh, this person's a zombie. What are we gonna use for makeup? We're just gonna smear uh oatmeal on their faces. <laughs> <laughs> and 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 a lot of dark underline under the eyes and and you know something dribbling out the corner of their mouth and they're a zombie now it's like you know easy peasy yep yep and i'm seeing you know it's the old thing from celebrity deathmatch mills lane i'll allow it you know just yeah <laughs> oh no but no uh that that was a good point that that Jonathan brought up with the thank you for bringing up the Vikings because it reminded me of all that other stuff you do. You guys out there do that research and fall down that rabbit hole. Um, pretty much in the scientific community, as far as the discovery of the new world, the whole Columbus thing is kind of why, why do you think a lot of places are getting rid of their Columbus Day and they want to change it into Indigenous Peoples Day? 
Because even the movie, and I believe it was 1492 Conquest of Paradise. Yeah. I want to say Gerard de Perdue. Yes. First of all, Columbus was a, was an <clears throat> F up. He had to keep, he was from Genoa, and he had to keep going from monarch to monarch to monarch to try to find a trade route. And I'm guessing Queen Isabella of Spain kind of took pity on him and gave him the three ships. It wasn't taking pity. I mean, she actually thought she could get an advantage. She believed him. But every other monarch, every other monarch was just like, get out of here. You're, you're a joke. You know, she gave him, you know, the Nina, the Pinta and the Santa Maria. And he went there and found, oh, no, this isn't a trade route. Yeah, this is the West Indies. But, oh, look, there is a very abundant resource of, oh, look. There's a whole nother continent over here. Yeah, but he, I'm going to put this out here. Columbus was basically a slaver. And that is why many of the many municipalities and states are trying to get rid of Columbus Day to make it Indigenous Peoples Day. And so go down that rabbit hole and this will help you in your, I mean, just generally to enlighten you and inform you, all of you out there listening. But yeah, check out all the other various cultures and people. As I said, I, I, I brought up the Yam Kodesh earlier about how the Vikings, just, you know, in the 900s, and then the Druids came after. And the Yam Kodesh basically were, there were Native American tribes that basically just said, oh no, they were like eight feet tall, and they were monster men, and they had these heads of animals, and it, it's like the Druids had forged helmets with hinges with like plates that went over the shoulders, and they were fashioned like deer and bulls to scare the Native Americans. That's what the Yam Kodesh was, was basically, it was basically an offshoot of the Druids that had come over following the Vikings coming over. So yeah, I mean, you could throw all that in. If you really wanted to go down that rabbit hole and research, and I recommend you do, you could really throw in a whole bunch of stuff that the the colonials could tap into to gain help to fight via supernatural means Britain to attain their independence. Heck, they even found that the Aztecs traded all the way up to like Minnesota and Japanese were found south of the Ohio Valley. They found Japanese artifacts and they carbon dated them and did all that. And they were like, yeah, this is Japanese. That means they had to have come across country and like just south of the Ohio Valley. So I think that's like Kentucky and Tennessee they found Japanese artifacts from like the 1400s in that area. So yeah, there's folks, you could just mine this. If you go down that rabbit, you can mine all sorts of various cultures that made their mark here in the new world in the Eastern half. Now the, the whole, yeah, it, it, there's other things too, but they came up later. Um, Kavokian, I think, even, Indiana. Again, yeah. we're not even really talking about anything west of the Mississippi here. Oh, no. Well, Kavokia, I think, was in Indiana, Illinois, and it was a city of, like, 50,000 people. But it had been abandoned by the time that, you know, colonials got to the New World. But it was, yeah, it was a, a massive hill city of, like, 50,000 people. And by the time we found it and unearthed it, you know, here in America, yeah, it was already ruins and buried over and yeah. But we're going to try to keep this to the eastern seaboard because remember, the Appalachians to the Colonials were pretty much unpassable. So their land kind of ended where the mountains began. I mean, at the most, they were maybe in the foothills. Some of the Colonials might have tried to go go up into the Appalachians and the Smokies and all that, you know, the Poconos and the Adirondacks and the Alleghenies up north. But even then, just research the, you know, the Native American tribes in that area in along the eastern seaboard, and you'll find out all sorts of little things that the, the colonials would, you know, tap into those resources to try to, you know, help them out. 
because if the Brit if the British are bringing in Carsis and rich board socialites with lots of money, and if they're getting help from the Irish and maybe the Scottish, you know, they're conscripting them. Yeah, the Colonials are going to need all the help they can get. So they and have a whole... out of India? Hmm? Wait, what was that? I said anything they can get out of India? The Colonials or the Brits? The Brits. Well, yeah, I think they'd already um, gotten to India by then. Yeah, oh. I oh, think so, oh. yeah. So, yeah, they oh, would... Oh, oh, the whole Hindu so... culture. Oh, that would be... Oh, that's frightening. Kali worshippers. <laughs> Shiva, yeah. Mm. Vishnu, Brahmin, I believe those... Are, well, I mean, the, the Hindu religion, what is it, 330 million gods? But the four that we know of are Brahmin, Vishnu, Shiva, and Kali. Yeah. Don't forget Ganesh. Ganesh, yes. Can't forget Big elephant god, come on! Yeah, I was gonna, I was gonna make the joke. It's like, yeah, nor, yeah. So you don't forget. You'd have to have a memory like an elephant. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> One show a week, folks. Dementia Radio Tuesday nights. You're saying, um, <laughs> but yeah, I, I didn't even think of that. The whole because, like, yeah, by, oh no, by the 1700s, yeah, the, the yeah, they were there because I think in the late 1700s was the whole. Um, and I'm snapping because I'm trying to do that 5K fun run down memory lane. The Black Hole of Calcutta. I'm trying to remember when that was. If that was around then, yeah, that the Brits were already in India and had access to all of that. The British ruled uh, from 1858 to 1947. Well, still, I mean, there was that phrase, the sun never sets on the British Empire. Right. But they were there before then, of course. So, uh, but it's not, um, uh, I, I don't know, you know, how long it took them to actually uh, take over India. So, I, I can't speak to that. If nothing else, they had some trade by that point. Sure. Um, looking up yeah. now, because I, I employed my Google Foo and you didn't hear the, I cut out the martial arts, you know, whip crack sounds as I did it. Uh, the Black Hole of Calcutta was June 20th, 1756. So, yeah, they had 20 years already there just with India, so they could possibly draw upon Indian resources. Yeah, Dungeon at Fort William, Calcutta, held prisoner, British prisoners of war on the night of June 20th, 1756. Yeah. Oh, and he was an employee of the East India Company as well as you know, being a Brit, yeah, employee of the East India Company. Many died from suffocation, heat exhaustion, that, oh, geez, 123 of 146 prisoners of war in prison there died. Wow, it's a hell of an attrition rate. Yeah, so they are they were already, already had their claws well into India by that time. And now, and now Eddie Izzard comes to mind. Do you have a flag? No. <laughs> you know, East India Company ruled from 1612 to 1757, and there was other company rule in India from 1757 to 1858. So definitely, you know, uh, the uh, there was a strong presence in India, and certainly uh, if they had if if, if if there were again the Hellfire Club was drawing from all possible sources then there's lots and lots of mysticism and secret societies in India to draw from as well. Oh, yes. But yeah. that's, that's getting a little bit too far afield for me, so I'm just going to leave that alone for people who are better, better historians than I am. Well, no, I can understand that they might have, they might have, you know, come back from India and had a ritual that they found out if they were into that thing and then use that. I doubt that they would have the time and the resources to ship a whole boatload of, of Hindu mystics. To, yeah, they did. No, they would most likely steal the ritual from them and then use it themselves, you know, in the Hellfire Club or whatever. Yeah. I doubt you're going to be dealing with, you know, as I said, a whole boatload of Hindu ascetics trying, or, oh God, what is the term? The warrior monks, and I researched this for Maze World. Uh, Sankata. Yeah. You're not going to have a bunch of um, 
Hindu Sankata coming out, you know, trying to slash a colonial, you know, musket. No, that's not going to, the Brits would be like, no, that, that, that's too cost intensive. No, it would take them years to get there. So, but yeah, still, I, I would see that there would be some maybe Hindu mysticism that the Brits would draw upon to try to, you know, curtail colonial advancement, so to speak. There is one, again, there's one other thing that you didn't include in this, and that is a mechanist, someone who makes devices. Okay, I wanted to go there because they have that in Northern Crown where you have the Revolutionary War era kind of clockwork type stuff and using explosives and like pre-pre-pre-steampunk type stuff. But I, I, I didn't know how that would fly. I thought about it. I was like, eh, no. Okay. You find it a viable idea. Okay, I do agree with you there. I was just kind of hesitant of bringing that up. You're going to need, you know, specialized gear. Uh, I mean, you've got, you, you've got the um, herbalists who are going to be finding banes and things like that. Because remember, you know, when Bureau 13 came in, originally they didn't have any mages and other type people helping them. 1884, yep. Right. What they had was banes. What they had learned was this is, this is a protection against this type of creature or that kind of creature. It was kind of a negative. It was all, you know, they basically uh, protected themselves as best they could and used things that would repel or weaken their opponents so that they could attack them with, generally speaking, normal weapons. Well, yeah, the the yeah, it was. I, I make the the line when I describe when I you know let people know about the bureau when I have the time to explain it. Yeah, until for the first twenty five years they were around, they had nothing but god guns and guts. Right. So you know, and a lot of and 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 uh, uh, Molotov cocktails. Okay. Oh yeah. Because yeah. I mean, generally speaking, uh, you know, the best way of getting rid of the supernatural historically is to burn it. Kill it with fire, yeah. Yep. So I can see a lot of that happening. And that's, again, where these early uh, mechanists would come into play. Some kind of fire caster, some kind of, you know, an explosive might be just to, you know, blow things up, but also to set things on fire so that, you know, you and also to destroy evidence. Because the Bureau of 13, part of the Bureau of 13's uh, edict has always been don't let, you know, try to reduce you know, uh, people's fear by eliminating evidence of the supernatural. So this would also be going on. Folks, mm -hmm. another good um, resource, and it is Pathfinder-based, and it just hit me now. I mean, if you could dial back the tech a little, this would work. Are either of you familiar with the setting from Icosa Entertainment, Pure Steam? I think I've it's heard of it, sort, it's sort of Wild West kind of maybe late or early 19th century, but I'm sure if you dial back the tech a little, get rid of the steampunkiness, you could use that as a a a setting for running this type of thought experiment Bureau 13 game. And they pretty much cover where it is. Yeah, I think it's like the first half of the 18th century. But if you just dial the tech back or, you know, make, you know, the earlier versions of a lot of the, the mechanistic things, you could use that as well. But yeah, I, mechanist, yeah. I, as I said, I was kind of hesitant. I didn't know if we wanted to go there. and Because I didn't want people going, oh, you're trying to make, you know, the steampunk. No, they had mechanical devices back then. A lot of them were clockwork type stuff. And yeah, I think that would be just just to, to keep aware of you don't want to go too far into steampunk. if you write. Right, right. Yeah. Which there are some people that, you know, would do that in a heartbeat just because they like the clicking and clacking. Um, I mean, there are people who would do that in a modern day campaign. So, well, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, we. <laughs> so, yeah. what do you mean you have a microfusion Herb reactor in your pocket? Yeah. But Herb yeah, enthusiasm no. for the steampunk. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <clears throat> But no, I, I could see them having, and of course, a lot of times it would be, I mean, I would think that the higher technology 
the me- the mechan the bleh, the mechanist would have to you know basically your colonial militiamen. The mechanist would be a they, they'd be putting a hairy eyeball on the mechanist as much as they would the supernatural. They'd be looking at both of them and just say, okay, you do that over there and tell us when you're ready to launch it. Yeah, we're going to be over here with our guns, which we know work. Yeah, they didn't call them infernal machines for nothing. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> they, they, would be, they would be giving both the herbalist, the Native American shaman, and that mechanist just... They would all be getting a wide berth. It's like, okay, we know your stuff works, but it's still as my one friend Carrie Springer would say, taint natural. So you, you're you over there with that, and we're over here with our muskets and our, our black powder and all that. We'll provide cover fire while you set whatever the Lord's name that thing is that you're building there. You know, just... Whatever unnatural... Contraption. Contraption <laughs> that, that you're using to ensnare their very souls. Yeah. You know, you, you shouldn't expect, you know, these people all to work well together. They have a common goal. They could be, in a sense, not even considered allies, but co-belligerents. Yeah. Oh, I, oh, I like that term. They're trying to eliminate the British from the area so that they can, you know, breathe free. They can, you know, start living their lives the way they want to. But of course, all their lives would be lived in completely different fashion from each other. And uh, as soon you know, as soon as that happens, there's going to be a like, you know, it's time for you guys to leave. <laughs> or no, what? what and, um, there's the door. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> no, I'm reminded of Star Trek Into Darkness. Well, remember, we're trying to get us to help. We're trying to get him to help us. The enemy of my enemy is my friend. An Arabic proverb said by a prince who was later beheaded by his own people. Yeah, but it sounds good. Yeah, same thing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I I do see that, yeah, because you would have not only just the different methodologies be used, but just different ethnicities. You have, you know, your your for, your Brits trying to be colonials. You have the you, you know, maybe the the African, you have Native American. You have the French Trapper, which we all know throughout history, the British and the French have never gotten along. Even with the EU, there's still their differences to this day. I mean, I believe the terms limey and frog are still used to this day. And you're going to have that tension of the various cultures and ethnicities being thrown together for one purpose. The redcoats need to be gone. But that does not mean that the... just because they have to work together doesn't mean they like each other. And you're going to, and I mean, you don't want to get into, if you do this, you don't want to get into like stereotypes and you don't want to turn this into any, but you do have to realize that these cultures, some of them, you know, barely were able to get along and others, there was just outright animosity. You know, remember, the Africans in the setting, 99% of them would be slaves. They would be treated like, well, crap. As would pretty much any female character. Just, you're going to, and I mean, it's good that if you shy away from that type of role playing, but yeah, you got to remember the historical for, I mean, you want verisimilitude as much as you can considering the setting and this thought experiment, but you're going to have to realize that the men are going to be very haughty toward anyone who isn't the white guy. And they're aware of the balance you're striking between historical accuracy and fun for the player. Yeah, exactly. Their verisimilitude only goes so far. After a while, if you're sitting there and constantly being a jerk to all the female characters in the game, after a while, it's going to rub, especially, and I have no problem with a guy playing a female character. Or a woman playing a male. I got no problem with that. I've had that 35 years of my gaming. But I'm going to tell you right now, if you're going to be sitting there and being haughty and just being nasty to a female character and it's a woman, that's going to end real quick. So you got to, as it, like Jonathan said, you got to strike that balance. But you also do have to remember that every once in a while it might be fine just to keep 
the flavor, like, well, yes, you're a woman. You shouldn't be out here on the battlefield. You should be in, you know, fill in the list of sexist stereotypes. You might get away, say that once just to establish the flavor. You keep doing that at the table and the GM might have to break up a fight. Just, just putting that out there. Just... <laughs> so, yeah, it, 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 again, yeah, with all these different cultures on the table, you know, uniting against a common goal, they're not, it, it's not going to be all kumbaya, all linking elbows, what, no. But, again, fine balance. But I do see that with the research done, you could, you could actually have a pretty diverse team. I mean, obviously, the majority probably will be colonial militiamen who are just like, okay, you know what, we're getting our posteriors handed to us by the British because they're pulling things out that we didn't, that we know exists and we don't have access to. Okay, we're tapping resources A, B, C, D, and E. You need to help us. Why? We're all in danger here. Right. And and let's be let's be honest about this. You know, those are going to be played by the players who don't want to put the research and the effort into playing the more complex characters like the you know grannies or the uh, or the 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 alchemists or the uh, priests or uh, you know whoever else. Oh, French cat. Oh. Oh, French Catholic priests. There's another thing because they a lot of them were up in Canada and all that. They don't have to be French. I mean, they were Catholics in America. Well, yeah, but I mean the major because I remember again the Mijake research. There were you know the French Catholic priests were there in Montreal, and then for them going to the frontier was because Montreal was a pretty big city even by 1710. My point here is is that, you know, since this is something that unless you like grab like a book like Colonial Gothic and just and play, you know, play it, use it as your 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 your, your number one source, you're going to be your GM and the players are going to be doing a lot of work developing their characters and the the char- the people who want to do the most effort are going to be the ones going toward the more, you know, outlandish type things like the you know, but the the people who are playing the spirits and animals, or the people that are playing the uh, uh, you know the American uh, uh, soldiers or uh, uh, sailors that have you know seen too much and are willing to do something, uh, you know, they're going to be playing more everyday Joes, if I you know use that term. Uh, there might I uh, there might and I'm trying to think here. You know, there. Um, you know, you could, uh, and with the Catholics, you could also have some some Catholic nuns, you know, who, you know, could uh, could be, you know, uh, could also be player character. Well, they would be. Well, remember back in the day, nurses were usually, or nuns were usually nurses. That was the whole German term for uh, nurse was Krankenschwester or illness sister. Remember, most hospitals were run by the church back in the day. So a Catholic nun would end up also end up being your medic, barring her having any type of clerical abilities, you know, praying to the Lord and, uh, you know, laying a hands type thing. Even, even then, she could just be a medic and it's like, I have the bandages and the, you know, and the alcohol. Yeah, Bureau 13, the, 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 the current game, has plenty of rules for uh, even going back to the 1992 edition, uh, has plenty of rules for priests having supernatural ability, the ability to bless, the ability to heal, the ability to ask for divine intervention, uh, the ability to create wards you know, against evil, the ability to uh, cleanse areas of supernatural influence, uh, to hallow ground that the supernatural cannot cross into. I mean, these are essential people in a fight against the supernatural no matter what time it happens and and that and that clerical type i just mentioned could be anywhere from you know the birth of you know the uh i should say the birth uh the resurrection of christ all the way up to uh modern day so you know and and any if you played a knight templar you you know they might have many of these abilities but I'm speaking specifically, you could have a female character who's playing these kinds of, of roles. You know, uh, uh, it, it would allow uh, uh, her as a woman to travel about 
with the kind of freedom that a lot of women normally would be like, what, you know, where's, where's your home? Where's your husband? Where's your father? You know, where's your family? You know, what are you doing out here? Are you a prostitute? Are you a barmaid? You know, I mean. Yeah, what are you doing out here unattended? Unless you want to play pairs of brothers and sisters, which can provide a lot of coverage in that regard for society. You know, you know I am just here with my brother. And it's like, oh, then fine, you know. But that's something you might have to do as part of your cover to uh, to give yourself that kind of freedom. If you were like close friends who grew up and saw things that you shouldn't, and she doesn't, you know, she wants she doesn't want to be a a farmer, you know. Uh, she wants to do something about the supernatural, or her father was a uh, a mason uh, and told. And, and told her about, you know, some stuff that he's doing. And she says, well, I want to be part of it. They says, well, you'll have to go, your brother will have to go with you then because there's no way that uh, a proper young woman would be permitted to travel about without her uh, a member of her family with her. So, you know, players would have to, you'd have to create these kinds of brother and sister teams or father and daughter. Uh, it's, it's doable. I'm just saying is that that's a role-playing thing. It's not a mechanic thing. So, uh, but, you know, don't think just because, you know, you're a woman in the 1700s, you can't be part of this. Well, remember back 150 years before, there were women who were full pirates and they were like captains of their ships and... Right. Well, yeah, and they were, they were totally on the out of normal society. <laughs> We, we have ways of dealing with it in, in Fringeworthy. You basically say the royalty. Uh, in, in this particular setting we're talking about, I think that probably just saying that another member of the team is a family member and actually being a family member would make a lot of sense. So, you know, as far as, as you say, creating the verisimilitude of, uh, of a female character in that society. That's all. You know, if you want to, again, if you just want to play whatever... No one's telling anybody they can't play whatever character they want to play in a beer thirteen game. I... But I'm, I'm, we're just saying that in order to keep the verisimilitude, you're going to have, let's say, it's a woman who knows how to fight with knife and musket pistol, and let's say it's a woman who became a trapper. And so she has the knife and the, the hand axe and the, you know, can throw them and fire the musket pistol. That would be one tough woman. Well, that's what I mean. Yeah, she would still catch all sorts of grief for being a very active woman in that society until she, you know, cleans six men's clocks in a row as they all try to subdue her. and Which they would try. Show her her place, air quote. They would try and... They would try to show her her place. Yeah, and she would show them theirs, which would be on their back, on the ground, possibly unconscious. So... Possibly dead. Well, yeah, that too. I'm, I'm, I'm you know, trying to go for, you know, least case scenario. Here. Don't sugarcoat it. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm not Willy Wonka, but I'll sugarcoat if I have to. I'd say is that, you know, if you're, if you're playing an independent woman... Okay, if you're trying to be at all true to the times, you are a tough-as-nails person. Yes. And so that would be good adventure, you know, a little side thing just to have to do, you know, the GM go, okay, yeah, these six guys are going to, and air quotes, put you in your place, and you play the, the little combat, and the woman walks away. These guys are all laying on their sides, clutching, you know, their stomachs or, you know, broken arm or whatever, and they walk away, it's like, See, I can I can handle my own on air, and of course, all the other people in the party are like, yes, you can, ma'am. Yes, they're saluting her, even if they're not military. They're just like, yes, ma'am. <laughs> because unfortunately, uh, you know, the uh, the the Masons did not include, uh, unlike the Hellfire Club that accepted genders, uh, uh, both genders, into their ranks. The uh, Masons, as far as I can tell, at the time were complete, and maybe even today, uh, are completely uh, male, a uh, male order. I I have a couple of friends in the Masons. Um, I have not heard of women being Masons. I don't know if it's just they that that information has not been made public, or they are still to this day 
male only uh, group. But no, back back in the day, no, 1700s, no. I'm surprised that women were allowed in the Hellfire Clubs. Yeah, it was it was considered. Well, of course, they were trying to be outrageous. <laughs> okay, then yeah, yeah, yeah. And of course, if you're if you're going to have a you know an order that indulges in all kinds of uh, aberrations, it helps to have both sexes involved. Well, yeah, well, well, not uh, again. It's the whole, as we say, as you'd say, use it. Not that there's anything wrong with that. Yeah. Um, but no, yeah, the, the women would be there, all right. Yeah, and so what I'm saying is, in, in what we've talked about, where if we if you're using the Masons to support, you know, then you know this wouldn't be a team of people drawn from the Mason ranks. The Masons would be their support system. You know, they would be they would find places for them to stay as they went from place to place solving the missions. You know, they would be the ones providing the funds for them safe houses and well just just people to keep them i mean you come into a town you know there might be a boarding house you know uh they would provide cover stories for them they would they would provide the necessary uh you know they're uh, they're you know they're they're a friend of my sister in albuquerque you know whatever i mean they you when you if you're a stranger in town you know you need cover you know it's from from people in town that'll stand up for you, especially when bad things are happening. Like you know, because you know, you know, if you play D and D, you know, you go into an area and something bad's happened. The first thing they do is look at the strangers, and you're gonna, and even though you're working for them on their behalf, you're gonna, there are going to be people who see you as the problem. Oh yeah, oh yeah. And I'm not just talking about the evil that's masquerading amongst them, who know you're the, you're the, the they're the problem, but they want you. But you're a problem because you're coming in trying to stop them, and so they're going to call you the problem unless you have coverage, and that's why you need these support systems. So, anyways, uh, that's all I got. <laughs> <laughs> I think we've right, covered I, a I, lot I, more. Yeah, more than but th this this ended up being an idea. Um, yeah, where I pulled this out of this afternoon, yeah, I had to clean it off really well. I'm thinking, really? They're going to go with this site? Like at 757, holy crap, we're actually <laughs> running with this. Okay. All right. <laughs> yeah. yeah. If I am allowed, if, if I may do the closer for this, since, yeah, it kind of... Just remember, Trav, how many years of gaming experience we have between ourselves. This is why we're able to do this sort of thing. And it's one of the reasons why Gaming on the Frontier is in many ways superior to a lot of the other flash-in-the-pan gaming podcasts out there. Not that I'm saying anything bad about anybody else out there, but I'm just saying is that we bring something to the table. Yeah, we've been doing we've been doing this now for eleven years, folks. Going on twelve in a couple of months. So yeah. But I mean, our own gaming experience is so wide and varied that we can draw from all these resources that we've run across in our years of experience. That you know, and 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 bring it, you know, add it, you know, bring the bring the awesome to the ta gaming table. That's what we're about. So go ahead, Trav, do the close. And have a lot of damn fun doing it. Okay. Um, this thought experiment that we have been through, um, if Bureau 13 had been formed during the American Revolution, has incredible potential to bring in a lot of fantastic role playing. It will give you guys an opportunity, and gals, I use guys, gender neutral term, to bring in a lot of research of history and and mythology of various cultures and all sorts of new ideas and what and and learning as i said the columbus base discovering america that's kind of going by the wayside now we've explained earlier all the other cultures that have touched foot on the new world soil long before columbus made it here in 1492. uh this thought experiment it does. It has a lot of potential to be just fantastic. And we have mentioned various resources that you can use to help you get a foothold in this mindset of a setting. Again, Northern Crown by Atlas Games. Colonial Gothic by Rogue Games. Okay. Those are two sources you can use for this thought experiment. And they are both 
OGL enough where you could use them for Bureau 13 OGL rules. We would love to hear about if you, any of you out there take this thought experiment, run with it. Best places to contact us would be fans of the Gaming on the Frontier podcast, Bureau 13 agents everywhere, both on Facebook. And as I said, Bruce and I have, you know, made our emails public. So if you wish to contact us that way or on Facebook, if you know us, I'm on Twitter, uh, Trav13369. And just let us know that you've taken this idea and run with it. And what else all of you came up with? Because I've come to realize that, you know, this idea that I just pulled, you know, flash in the pan thing. We just did two hours on it and just opened up whole new avenues. I mean, in the two hours, the three of us just slayed the game as far as what could be done with this. And as I said, this would be this is a wonderful chance to research on history and mysticism and culture of a, a time from long, long ago, which is part of this nation's history here, America. We want to thank you all for tuning in, and we will have more for you next week. But until then. This is Bruce Sheffer saying there are a million, million worlds out there, so go explore them. And this is Trav. There's a reason why it's called gaming. It's for having fun. Gaming on the Frontier podcast is wholly owned by its hosts. It is released under the Creative Commons 3.0 license. No commercial reproduction and any use of any element of the podcast must be attributed to the Gaming on the Frontier podcast. Hi, this is Trav from the Travcast. Listen to me Tuesday nights, 8 to 10 p.m. Eastern on listen.dementiaradio.org colon 8027.